Hey guys, it's Amelia Singer here on Ameliorate Through Wine, where I pair wine to international guest palettes, personalities, and personal stories. I am thrilled that this podcast is being vigorously propelled by the Rothschild Wine Collection from Good House Wadston, all names synonymous with a century-old legacy of art and wine craftsmanship. I really couldn't think of a better pairing for this wine and culture podcast. From the early 1920s to the present day, the Rothschild family's profound love for both art and wine coming together has been at the heart of their journey. Their family's artistic heritage distinguishes the labels, often telling a unique story that gives an extra dimension into their exceptional wines. With handcrafted bottles created by celebrated artists, mesmerizing cellar installations, and label artwork produced by members of the family themselves, the Rothschild's timeless commitment to the fusion of art and wine is a legacy that continues to inspire connoisseurs and enthusiasts alike. Visit goodhousewadston.com for more information. So now, sit back, pour yourself a glass, and enjoy. Hey guys, it's Amelia Singer here, and I'm recording with Tim Gosling, who's a furniture and interior designer and a go-to architect and innovator to the rich and famous. And right now, we are being hosted in his beautiful home, Sycamore House. And as I pour the first wine, Tim, can you tell us a little bit more about where we are and the story behind this house? There's nothing better in the world for me than kind of history, because, you know, that's where my mind goes to. I'm kind of, I live in a kind of cerebral world of hunting things down and pulling a string and leading on to another part. And I think for me, the excitement of then discovering the Sycamore House, which is built in 1787, was a private house until about 1830. It became a laundry and um, it bizarrely became a laundry that became appointment to the queen. So this is where, you know, all her majesty's knickers and all of the whole (laughs) household things in this very room were pressed. Wow. And I found all these incredible photographs of the royal warrants all the way up the front of the house. And so when the Sycamore Laundry eventually kind of went into kind of not receivership but they kind of calmed down and i think that the the name still exists or it's owned by a kind of another company now but they gave me all the royal warrants from her majesty the queen duke of edinburgh um the queen herself the queen mother and it's just incredible then to have the full archives of everyone coming to here to to open up something and you know they invented the first dry cleaning in england was in the garden and it's just you know it's just a dream place to to have something also for me it gets me really frisky and excited to think that it's the same year that mozart was writing don giovanni you know, it, it puts it in, for me, musically yeah. into perspective. And I love that. I really do. So I then bought another bit and another bit and another bit. Um, it's the most ridiculously insane and incredibly embarrassing um, one-bedroom place in the whole world. But, you know, you've got a library, Egyptian room, plaster room, um, small dining room. You know, it's, 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 it's enough space to be able to live and to, to create, I think. It's a real treasure trove too. There's just like so many things There's I want to. Way too much. Stuff. I, I need a whole podcast just around this house. I'm like, we're gonna have to do that another time. Well, first of all, cheers and thank you so much for hosting us in your beautiful home. It's a pleasure. We're starting off with a rosé, which is probably a little bit darker than the roses you usually drink. Because you mentioned that you like rosés. You tend to go for drier. You're very scared of sweet rosés. And you spend a lot of time in France, so you probably have a lot of Provence. But I was not going to give you 
a French rosé because I always like guests to try something a bit different. So I'm not going to tell you what it is, but what, what, what do you think? It's delicious. It's much drier than it looks. Uh, I know. Which I, is I can see you looking at it very gingerly, which is why it's got I deliberately chose it. Reasonable <laughs> amount of colour, which without it being too too bright pink. Yeah, it's more like a salmon. Well, how would you describe that? You have your own paint range. Would you say that's a more of a salmony pink? It's got a lot of yellow in it, actually. Um, when you look at it, a deliciously light rose colour. Mm, yeah. Almost veering onto um, to a sunflower. I love that. It's a wonderfully alkaline um, taste to it. No, I, I love it because it bursts full of kind of like red plums and like berries. But then you're right, like there's a really crisp And it pulls kind it of back right at the right, end. Right at the end. But it's really juicy. Um, yeah. Would it surprise you if I told you it was from Portugal? Yes. Well, it also, so this actually, it comes from the Dow region. And is it a small producer because it tastes like it's not made en masse? Well, this is where I'm going to surprise you. It's actually from Aldi. Mm -hmm. It's £6.50, but it wins all these awards because they work with different... Um, they had this label um, in Portugal called Mimo Montino. And it's basically considered to be probably Aldi's most reliable and consistent label. So they work with different producers around Portugal. So this is from the Dow region. They also have someone who produces for them in Lisbon. Also, um, I think, outside of Porto. And uh, so actually, they... Um, are made on quite a big scale. I wouldn't say that this particular rosé from the Dow is one of the biggest in the range. But it's interesting but yeah. because, you know, throughout the summer, I mean, in my attempt to find a rosé that we yeah. could settle on, I mean, even between the kind of six euros to 15 euros, it was very complicated to find something that wasn't sweet or wasn't, that was just, that was so cloying in the, its intensity. I remember you saying um, that to me in our talks. So I was like, I'm determined to find struggle. something. But I mean, you know, it's quite interesting because I couldn't understand for the life of me, why on earth there was a sweet rosé out there? I mean, why does it exist? It's rather like saying... Uh, um, I blame Zinfandel Blush um, rosé from California when they had uh, a, an overgrowth of kind of Zinfandel grapes in the 1970s. And Bob Trinchero from Sutter Home, which is like this huge winery out there, was like, what do I do with all these extra Zinfandel grapes? And he's like, I know, we'll... Like, instead Market of it. making a red wine, we'll just press the grapes so it creates a rosé. And just and it's, and also, you're bearing in mind, too, is the 1970s, people in America really have been drinking cocktails from the Prohibition ages. You know, like when you look at Mad Men, like the 50s and 60s, everyone's drinking cocktails. So to get people into wine, that kind of sweeter, off-dry approach was like a kind of easy way in. And I think that style, unfortunately, has stayed the only time i think i would in properly enjoy a glass of slightly like off dry rosé would be with like fusion oh, food and like sushi and or, a or even a dessert or a I dessert mean, you know, yeah with some cheese maybe fantastic or, yeah as i said six pounds fifty from aldi and i just wanted to introduce you to a rosé which i thought was like fruity but like not sweet Perfect. but you actually i was like really impressed when i did first call you because you actually had your first experience of wine quite young and actually have some really fond memories surrounding it. Yes, I mean, I, I, I remember distinctly because my father was a great wine buff, um, a mad, insane professor of science. Um, from the age of, you know, I think we were about kind of eight, we went down to a nudist colony in the south of France, um, <laughs> which is, it sounds weirder than it is. It's just <laughs> um, growing up in a kind of you know, entire environment with their families, um, 
the strangest thing is obviously banks hairdressers going to collect your croissant in the morning on a bicycle there is a technique to actually riding a bicycle naked that doesn't look so completely ridiculous because you have to kind of move your body to one side otherwise it looks like a dalek approaching um anyway past that so my by being in bordeaux um on the arcachon basin there was a lot of time to be able to, from eight onwards, to be able to experience going to all the wineries. So we went to pretty much every single one of the great houses and tasted the wines. But this is what I love about the French culture is that they would add water, which is unthinkable, to your wine for your you know, as a kid. So mm-hmm. that you would still have wine with your, you know, with your dinner at about 14 or 15 or even 12, but it would be watered down, but you would still be tasting it. And um, you mentioned your father, uh, Raymond Gosling, um, earlier, like being this like mad professor, but actually, didn't he discover, or one of the people to discover the structure of DNA and take the first photograph of it? Yeah, so he is, so one of the kind of greats of of our world, luckily, um, so he founded and took the first photograph, the DNA um, double helix, photograph oh, wow. 51. So he actually took no photograph 51. And I, what I love about that, there are kind of elements there where you continue to discover how important it was. And I think growing up with Watson and Crick and having so many books and so many letters and write, writings from, from each other, because they were all aware um, as time started, you know, getting you know, getting more um, later on in life that it was the, it made the, the invention of the nuclear bomb look trivial. I mean, mm-hmm. this is such a big thing. Sorry, Oppenheimer fans. Yes. No, no. <laughs> but, you know, because actually... Yeah, no, it's, you're you, right. It's so scary. You can't, having, you know, discovered DNA and the repercussions of that, you cannot put that back in the bottle. And he just, we are the first species to have ever kind of got to the stage when we can decide the route that we're going to take. And we haven't debated these ideas yet. And he was terribly worried that, you know, the, the, the levers of humanity could be used for fantastic things, but they can also be used for really terrible things. And we're just embarking on that now. I mean, you know, the mapping the genomes that mm-hmm. they're doing. Who owns this right? And he was very, very adamant from the word go that everything that he discovered should belong to humanity. And it killed him when, the, you know, he got to 65. They said, right, you've got to retire. There's no more money. He's in the midst of all his research yeah. with ultrasound. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Welcome kindly stepped and said, look, we'll pay you millions. And he said, who does it belong to? Then they said, us. And he said, no. And didn't do a single day's work after that. And I think it's, it, you know, that that is difficult for him you know that was a a really complicated process for him to understand because i i totally agree with him that things are so important sometimes that it should belong to humanity you can't map a genome and own it you shouldn't i don't think it's right to to have access you know you need access for everyone to be able to create these things and would you say that he was probably one of the most influential people in your life in terms of what you then decided to do career-wise? He was very influential in that my brain works in a way that, rather like you, I want to know why something is like something. Yeah. Why does that rosé taste like that? What are the ingredients? You know, how is something made up of something? What are the materials of a, of a red wine? What are you tasting? What are you experiencing? How do you express that? Would you, you describe know, yourself as a DNA structuralist of design? Yes, and actually, bizarrely, the last book that I did was the DNA of uh, furniture design. 
And my, my father's only comment was, well, technically, it's not really the DNA, is it? Because it's not about structure. <laughs> and I said, well, that's what everyone talks about now. You know, I want to try and put down why something is, looks like it is. Well, it's not about DNA then, is it? And I went... <laughs> No, but people use that now as an expression to understand the makeup of something. And uh, he was having none of it. Uh, so it's, you know, we agree to disagree. And I think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, we can discuss things on those levels. So I'm now bringing out a white wine, which I'm hoping to match with your creative career, as well as getting you to try something a bit different. Because when we spoke before you mentioned that you tend to be quite classic in terms of your wine tastes and we heard about your love of Bordeaux um so I'm actually bringing you to the new world (laughs) Australia actually but it is made in the style of a white Bordeaux what I mean by that is it's 90% Sauvignon Blanc 10% Semillon which has been barrel aged and uh this yeah I'm just like kind of seeing you taste it now, and I'm just curious, because I must admit, I'm not usually a Sauvignon Blanc fan. I tend to find it, like, really grassy, sometimes like cat's pee. But what I really love is when it has been barrel-aged and it does have that semillon to give it that texture, what I really love about this one is that it tends to be, like, you get the melon, you get kind of, like, peach, but then you do get the lovely sage, like, herbal elements, and then that curd-like texture I just really like. It's, it's delicious. It's really, I mean, it's, it's absolutely exactly what I would go for. Um, Would you ever normally order, though, an Australian white wine? No. Exactly. But, I, okay, I, but I well, didn't... Oh, no, well, I say no, but actually <laughs> my, my fiancé is Australian, so he sometimes heads that way. Um, and I look at him in horror. <laughs> well, I... But, I mean, yeah. but I have to say, in this one, it is delicious. There's something lacking at the end, though. As or, it... or, or just a bit of depth. I mean, I mean, it's very, I, very I light. I did just take it out of the fridge. So I would personally say, let's just let it open up in our glass a little bit more because um, I must admit, when particularly, I always say with white wines, people tend to serve them too cold. Red, uh, Sorry, yeah, too cold. And red wines tend to be served too warm. Yeah. And I'm particularly a fan of... Um, so I didn't realise that, you know, white wine would open up just as much as... Oh, yeah. A, a, and particularly like with this white wine. So this white wine, it's from Mosswood, which I'm sure your fiancé will have heard of because it's probably one of the most famous wineries um, in Margaret River. And it was created... I kind of... Um, the founder kind of really reminded me of you because he was an innovator. But um, as in, he went off to Margaret River when Margaret River... No one was making wine in the Margaret River. It was in 1969 when Bill Pennell went out there. And he'd only just graduated from wine school and was a bit of a cowboy. But he's like, but he really knew kind of what he, he had vision. And he knew that whatever he created, he wanted it to last. And uh, so he started off with the, with the cab. Um, he started planting in 1973, the Cabernet. And then a bit later, he started playing with Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, which we have um, in front of us. And um, you don't get that much. I also just wanted to show it to you because uh, it, it is a really special wine. You don't get that much. I think they only send out 26 cases. So that's 26 cases of 12 bottles to the UK. And it's called, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, the Ribbon Vale 2021 by Mosswood, and it's called Elsa, which is named after the current winemaker's wife's mother. And I think it is it is a bit too cold because... As and, the, it, and the, yeah. you know, the 21, does that make a difference if it gets, 
you know, if it's slightly older, does it become slightly rounder? I mean, uh, it's, it's round already. It's just it's, it's round already. But what you find, particularly with aged semillon, and like Australia is known for making incredible the semillon grape is like really, really underrated. But it can age decades, right. and it what tends to happen with that particular grape is it gets more and more waxy. Now, already we're experiencing just from 2021 that 10% of that grape in this blend is already giving that curd-like texture. Yeah. But if you give it a bit more time, then what will happen is the melon notes and the nectarine will fall away and you, you'll get more of, of, of the texture. I have to say, I mean, I, you know, I love white wine. Um, I, don't, I don't actually have to have it drunk very, very cold. Um, it's like if you're having kind of something with salmon and or kind of you know fish with it, it is it's just delicious um, to have it at a temperature in which it just it does open up a bit. Um, but this this is gorgeous. What I like about this style is it's great to drink on its own. But we have like as I say like cheese and meats in front of us. Um, I was thinking it'd be amazing with like a roast chicken dish too with like lots of sage and herbaceous flavors. And um, this wine and the next wine because I always like to in this podcast have one wine from supermarket and two wines from an independent. This one is around £30 from Jeroboam's. Um, so, yeah, there's a few. You can buy the wines online or if you're lucky like me, um, there are a few stores in London. I have one really near me and I <laughs> love it so much. And I just think the story, too, of this guy who had vision, who was adventurous and was an innovator, but still was building something with still a classic vision. It just, like, really reminded me of, of kind of you. And so can you tell us a little bit about how you started in your career. Because you started in theatre design first, didn't you? So I trained as a theatre designer. Yeah. Um, and act but actually, that you know, just taking a step back from that, having left school, and I applied uh, to the Central School of Art and Design to do a foundation. And I had absolutely, you know, that, you know at a 17-year-old, you have kind of school projects and they're pretty tragic. And <laughs> so, you know, as I went to the interview and I looked at my folio and I thought, oh, gosh, there's nothing here. Um, the only ones I can take are the kind of the drawings that I did in the nudist colony that we go back. So, and because I can't stop drawing and there were no buildings, I love drawing buildings. People are not yeah. my favorite things to draw, but right. when you're stranded on a kind of, you know, naked beach, yeah. there is nothing else to draw. So I had to take that. I can I remember, that yeah. I remember my mother and father saying, Darling, why would you take those? And I went, I've got nothing in the folio. <laughs> And the bizarre thing is, it is the only reason I got into art school. It is the only reason. No way. Yep. And because they just, it, it made me stand out. And they went, gosh, you've got, you know, life drawing. And I went, mm. yeah, because, you know, I, that's what I, you know, we do this thing in the summer. And, um, that's my holiday. And they, they just <laughs> thought that was so weird and fantastic and so not public school. And I think it was one of those things which, you know, I look back and laugh now that I was, you know, just it's a random moment of just saying, well, I've got to have something in my folio, stuffed them in and took it. And, uh, and then, you know, the rest is kind of once you're in that framework then and the degree doing theatre design was right next door. So I think stumbled into that where you learn colour and you learn costume design and fabric design and acting and lighting and movement. And, you know, your head is exploded. And that was an incredible degree. And I came out of that. And um, my first big musical was Miss Saigon, which I did for oh. two years, with a helicopter and then um which is basically the largest flymo on stage it oh was just gosh. colossal and then um starlight express tour version of new york and seafried north of vegas and then i met david lindney and suddenly i sprung into this mad moment of designing furniture and it was a very mad incredible um lunch which i know this sounds incredibly weird <laughs> with the queen mother um obviously and the queen mother 
said that it would be really good if this person called Mr. John uh, manages us. And I went, well, <laughs> that's brilliant, Your Majesty, Mr. John. He went, yes, there's a guy called Elton. He's really good and he's got fantastic people, um, you know, like lawyers and things. So John Reed started managing David, Ruth and myself. And it was, it was an, a really... It was an incredible moment for a thousand different reasons. Um, but, you know, you have this insight into a world in which, you know, I, I look back on it now and I don't think I was aware, you know, in my 20s how incredibly lucky I was. And you, my first trip to America was with um, Elton for yeah. the opening of the Taj Mahal, where I spent a week with Donald Trump. <laughs> So can I you, have a thousand you, stories about that. So I, I guess you, that's not for the podcast. That's not for the podcast. Well, you know, well, it's just, you know, it is just a wonderfully... Can you give us one? No, I just remember kind of thinking, gosh, is every single vehicle that we travel in, it's got a bar in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from the helicopters to the kind of limousines. And it was just, you know, it was just amazing. And uh, I was too... <laughs> we kept on, you know, the Donald was telling me how, you know, how incredibly expensive everything was and how this casino was built like this. And then they went, you can't come in. And I went, I don't understand why. And they went, you're too young. And I went, no, I am actually. I'm over 21. They went, go back to your room and get your passport. I went, I'm with the Donald. And it was like, it was just very odd, you know, welcome to the seventh wonder of the world, you know. And so we sat down for dinner and they said, well, what would you like to eat? And, and I said, can I have a look at the menu? And they went, there is no menu. It's anything your little heart would desire. No. And I went, oh, my gosh. And as a 20-year-old kid, it's quite difficult then to have access to anything. And you, I just literally, I think I asked for baked beans on toast or something. Because, you know, you just don't, your mind doesn't work that way. It's gorgeous to actually see someone taking you on a journey with food or with wine. And you think, gosh, that's quite interesting. You know, I'd love to try that. I haven't, to actually, you know, it's great stepping outside of your experiences when you go to these places. So it was odd. And I thought, oh my gosh, the whole of America's like this. <laughs> Needless to say it, thank goodness it isn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but yes, it was a very interesting um, career. So I then, at 2005, I set up my own thing. I was with David for 18 years, which was remarkable. And he was an incredible teacher. Um, brilliant, brilliant mind. And, uh, you know, and for it, listeners, David, his last name? Well, he's now... This is what gets so fantastically complicated. So it's, it's Viscount Lindley, who then became, you know, who was Lord Snowden. Yeah. Who, when Lord Snowden died, he then took over the title. So it's Lord David Snowden now. Yeah. So, yes. That guy. That guy. Um, and so, yes, Princess Margaret was his mother, who was wonderful and um, really fascinating. And obviously, the Queen was his aunt, who was extraordinary. And um, it is one of those remarkable things that, you know, when you look back on your life and you think you're in the midst of a conversation with someone and I couldn't get over the overwhelming sensation that I, I had her head on a coin in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation and um it's just it, it's it's you know i was very very lucky to have uh, you know a lot of time with the hog you know growing up with his family and growing up with my family um it, it it's a great experience and i think you know the queen mother was a, an extraordinary teacher in that she had so much experience and to ask her questions she, you know she didn't hold back on telling you about her life and about the things that she'd experienced during the war. So most of the people she would describe, you know, it was just amazing to ask her about Winston Churchill and 
her impressions of that or you know these we just came back from St. Petersburg and she knew um, St. Petersburg as a child and so she said uh, you know obviously you know I was there and I knew the the, 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 the Tsar and the Romanovs in fact actually he gave me my first piece of Fabergé would you like to see it so we tossed it up to her bedroom to have a look at the Fabergé collection and um I think it's just you become aware, having seen the palaces, which are now museums in, in Russia, and mm -hmm. sadly, probably in our lifetime, we won't be able to go back. Mm. It's, you know, you're aware then that someone knew them as palaces and that they knew the people that collected them and that they were, this was the kind of point of trace of contact that you were just hearing from experience, someone's recollection of, you know, St. Petersburg and the palaces and the summer palace. And, you know, that was a joy. You know, it's been an extraordinary privilege growing up with all these things. No, I mean, um, I read in one of your interviews that you said that you believe in making things that last for 300 years yeah. and which aren't caught up in the rather disposable transitory nature of <laughs> contemporary society, which I absolutely agree. So what would you suggest for people where, you know, to do or where can people find quality furniture, artwork design, which is still accessible, like kind of price wise? I think don't be scared about um, having things created for yourself. Um, you know, obviously, we're not talking about going to the same price of, of pieces from Ikea or, 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 you know, just general mass-made things, because then it becomes a kind of a unit number, you know, battle that you're trying to do. But I think there are great cabinet makers and craftsmen that do things on whole different levels. But also, you know, do things yourself. You know, we are a great country of DIY. Yeah. But, you know, that shouldn't be in a sense, uh, you know, don't think of it as a dumbed down thing because that DIY can have elements that you can do and that other specialized bits can be added by other people. So don't be scared, go out there and, and you know, if you have an idea, you can make it happen. And it's the same as theatre. That's why I love it. So, you know, theatre, seeing something in, in, on, a, on a stage, you know, you can do that in your, in your home. And don't be scared <laughs> that it has to last forever. You know, a colour should not last for the whole of your life. And I, I think I just look at our parents' generation when they go, yes, you know, that's exactly how it was when we kind of moved in. <laughs> that was 40 years <laughs> ago. You know, I changed the colour of the, you know, my heart literally explodes. I, I changed the colour of the drawing room. So I, you know, every single year or six months, because I change the, the picture hang, the idea of what you're trying to do. That's probably a, too much for a lot of people. But a colour should not be like a dog it's not for life so you know my my kind of parting you know words are go out and experience as much color as you can you know paint your house or your bedroom you know and think it's only going to last a year and for that you'll be much braver and it's the same That's you know go out and drink a wine that you would never ever normally drink like an australian white which i think like, is like opening up now white. actually i think it has opened up um I mean, we're right now in your beautiful home, but I did just have to ask, um, given your appreciation of things which last forever, do you actually own anything from Ikea? Gosh, dead silence. Um, <laughs> possibly not. I, I have to say what amazes me. It's not from the, at the sake of actually um, not wanting to own anything from Ikea. I have the same problem with supermarkets in that I hate being told where to go in my experience of looking and buying and shopping or museuming. The idea when you go into a supermarket that there's, there's a rat run and that they change the product around so that they make you go down every single aisle. I will not play that game. Yeah. 
So I refuse to go to a supermarket (laughs) on principle. I will go to my local, which is too small to be able to change the product around. So I know where things are and they stay there. It's the same, you know, because I have been to an Ikea, obviously. And the fact that they make you go through a whole kind of set of walkways, I will not play that game. It is not me. I will break through the barrier. I will go to what I want to see and what I want to do and not take it. Because I'm visually exhausted by the time I finish that and I don't enjoy the process. Yeah. And finally, just this is a fun question. Who was the nicest A-lister you've ever worked for and why? Gosh, A-lister. Well, I guess it can be, yeah. Well, like someone who would be considered a bit of a celebrity or whatever, but and, but actually... There was, I mean, I remember way back in the early days, um, obviously I'd be lucky to, to meet an extraordinary amount of people, but um, I can remember that there was a tennis player right at the beginning that, uh, that came in and I was having a whole conversation with um with them and i could see uh you know david in the background going cash cash and i went gosh i think you know so i kept i was like i'm sorry you're going to have to pay the kind of the invoice for this and i had no idea that he was talking about the tennis player pat cash oh my god um, and i just no. charged him an invoice no. for, for a design fee <laughs> and he thought i must have thought i'm absolutely insane um he obviously paid it because he was too embarrassed <laughs> I don't understand. I got the cash. He goes, no, it's part cash. <laughs> and I kept saying, I don't understand who that is. He goes, it's a tennis player. He goes, oh my God. So there have been many, there have been many moments of the miss. Actually, the worst one was actually kind of running into the shop, um, seeing this person who I thought I really knew really well, gave them a massive smack on the, you know, kiss on the kind of lips, ran upstairs. I'm late for a meeting. I can see you in a minute. <laughs> And I turned around and I was halfway up the stairs and I realised that actually that was Prince Andrew. And I thought, <gasps> oh my God, I've never met you before. <laughs> but it, it, just, it just happens a lot where you end up with these moments in your life where, you know, because I am surrounded by people that I do, you know, see on television constantly. Yeah. And sometimes you know them, sometimes you just don't know them. I'm sure it's happened to a thousand yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, And um, I think particularly now too, with to social one, media, yeah. too, you think you know people or whatever too. I think that's only become even more commonplace, but that is hilarious. Yeah, so I, you know, and it must be awful from, you know, everyone else's point of view when they're really well known that people automatically think that they know them. Um, and that's, you know, and I also became incredibly great friends with a, a, an actress from um, Coronation Street, um, only because I sat next to her at a, a kind of fundraiser for kind of homeless people. And, and I said, so gosh, so what do you do? And she said, I'm on the street. And I went, oh gosh, we're going to raise a lot of money for you tonight. <laughs> And she said, God, that's great. And I kept saying, so, you're, you know, you look remarkably well. And she said, I'm really busy. And I said, gosh, is it, you know, on the street, is it really that bad? And we had this, whole, this massive evening where it was... And, I, I kept, and then she said, anyway, I've got some filming today. I said, gosh, you film as well. And she said, yeah. The Coronation Street. And I went, I don't know, I've never seen it before in my life. And it was Helen Worth, and, um, oh who gosh. plays Gail. And, oh you know, she's been on it for like 36 yes. years. So we became incredibly good friends. Um, and, you know, had amazing moments when <laughs> she would then literally get pushed down the stairs on the, on, on the kind of thing and go into a coma when she was in hospital. And she didn't have to learn any lines. So we spent kind of a couple of weeks then seeing theatre. But, you know, we have, you know, we have great moments where a lot of my friends are kind of, you know, within the kind of the, I suppose, 
suppose, the, the bubble of, not a celebrity, but they're just in the kind of public domain. Yeah. And, you know, like any of us do, you know, you just, you just assume that you know how people's lives are and, you know, never assume. It's kind of quite interesting. That was so great. I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> so I've just poured the final wine, which, as you can see, is a red. How would you describe that color of red? I love your descriptions. I would describe it as a papal mm. um, red, and that it's that. got quite a lot of purple in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a deep, deep, deep red, but yeah, because it's got quite a lot of blue in it, and it has that um, element of you know I'd go Vatican red. Well, it's actually quite appropriate <laughs> you said that because actually it's an Italian red. Fantastic. I know that you said that you're less adventurous with wine when it comes to the reds. So I was like, we're not going to do a French red. We're going to do an Italian red. So this is actually a Chianti, mm-hmm. a Chianti Classico Reserva. So that whenever you see Reserva, that always means it needs to have been barrel aged for at least two years um, from 2017. So it's got a little bit of age to it. And this is also from Jeroboam's, £34. But um, why I also chose this red is because... Um, not only uh, it's made um, by Fattoria, I'm going to butcher Italian, please excuse me, Fattoria Casalost. Um, don't worry, guys, it is in the notes, so <laughs> if you can't understand where I'm talking about. And um, I just wanted to introduce you to it because I, all of that, they, they make a kind of generic Chianti, and then they've got a Chianti at all of the different levels of Chianti, Chianti Classico, Chianti Classico Reserva, as well as a Gran Selezione. But what is so amazing about Casalost is it's, it's this wine farm in the hills of Panzano and Chianti, so one of the most prestigious locations in the Chianti Classico region. But the owners are Giovanni Battista di Orsi and his wife, Amelia. So we already know she's, she's great. Spirits. <laughs> and uh, But the great thing is um, Giovanni, once he had qualified as an agronomist and an enologist, and he was working for other people, he actually left. He was married to Amelia, but he'd always spent all his free time trying to find the perfect site to build his own winery and um because he's like yes i want to be able to cultivate the grapes but i also just want to be able to leave my own mark in the landscape and so eventually um he managed to find the perfect site uh, he's got about 18 hectares and he's created this beautiful farm but it took years and then he's also created these wonderful guest uh, guest rooms too so i think he's got two guest rooms but he's constantly working and adding to it and this has been a project of labor of love and apparently still now because they've added to the winery and they're still adding different acres um, it's very much a team project with Amelia. And also sometimes it, it happens where they're still in the middle of construction and they're trying to find like places to store the grapes, you know, so they're having to shovel in sheds under corrugated iron. But it is absolutely stunning. And uh, the idea of a couple working together to kind of create something which in timeless location, but put their own mark on it. And it's still very much like a working project, but beautiful. Made me think of your project <laughs> in France. <laughs> The small, quite casual, little tiny chateau that <laughs> we accidentally Yeah, bought. yours is slightly more um, majestic. I mean, before we, we go on to just how brilliant and exciting this project is, um, what do you think of Giovanni's Chianti Classico Reserva? It's delicious. It's unexpectedly, um, it's got an enormous amount of flavour to mm-hmm. it, so it bursts in your mouth. And it's also got an incredibly kind of high range, um, so yep. a very, very high top note. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't dissipate which is great 
Um, but this has great depth, and it doesn't um, it doesn't taper off too much. I think there's no. a, there's a roundness to it, which is beautiful. There's a harmony yeah. there, and I think also the thing is also what I say about people is even if you don't have time to count, it's it's wonderful if you have the patience and or the the will to see how like it evolves in the glass too. Yeah. Like um, it's changing but, quite yeah. dramatically. Exactly, exactly. So no, well, great. I'm so glad you like this. As I said, that um, it's. Thirty-four pounds from Jeroboam's, but even the eighteen quid, uh, just their generic Chianti, is fantastic. And now I'm very, very excited to move on to a huge project which is extremely close to your heart. Can you tell everyone about the renovation of your fifty-seven-room French chateau, which I can't wait to visit? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to have you over. Um, so, yes, yeah, Steve and I um, bought a chateau five years ago. And the great thing is that it has a cellar. Hooray. Yes. So it has a cellar, which is um, an earth floor. And I didn't realize that that also regulates the temperature so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And um, very, very early on, uh, the notaire said, you know, make sure that, you know, this black mold on the, the, the cellar walls is really important. And as I got into kind of further into understanding about the restoration of the chateau, I didn't realize that the black mold feeds off the alcohol within the kind of the wines and the barrels. And actually, it helps regulate the temperature as well as the floor. So oh, wow. it's an incredibly important part of the um, the cellar. Um, I guess it's that whole kind of ecosystem. Ecosystem, exactly. And it, you know, it really is remarkable. We don't have any kind of cooling or heating systems in it. It just is. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. The most difficult thing is, obviously, you know, making sure that it's stocked enough and um, that we actually get it stocked more than we drink it, which is challenging. Um, <laughs> there was a fantastic moment during COVID when uh, Steve was based out there for the whole of COVID. And um, I came back and I said, I don't understand. What's happened to all the wine in the cellar? I think so. Well, people kept on dropping in. And I went, well, yes, but it's lockdown. I don't understand how that works. He goes, well, there's lockdown. And then there's lockdown, you know, when people would be able to kind of come across the country fields and just drop in for it, you know. It's like, wow, gosh, there's a lot of dropping in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's been a, it's, it's a great process. Um, and it had been empty for about 20 years. I think the most amazing thing about the, the, the process of buying um, a chateau, we just set out to find something that was architecturally interesting, that had land. And, you know, that could have been Italy. But in Italy, all these wonderful buildings, if they've got architectural strength, they're in a city. Oh, the palazzos uh, and palazzo, things. And then, yeah. then, you know, fantastic. But there's no outside space. Yeah. And then if you get into the kind of countryside, amazing, you know, but there are farmhouses. So it's just one of those things which, you know, France has a lot of them. We walked into this and within five seconds I went, oh my God, this is, you know, Steve and I turned to each other and said, this is absolutely, we're, uh, we're buying it. And the bizarre thing is, as we walked down the steps and came out, um, there's a kind of chateau on a kind of an, an axis which meets ours. So we have a tri- tree line avenue that meets their tree line avenue. I love saying that because it's so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and that chateau, Chateau Balois, I used to go and stay at for the last kind of 30 years. And I stood there and said, no, but I know that chateau. That's where I go and stay. And he said, you can't possibly. And out of all the places in the world, there's no way that we'd have found something. Mm-hmm. And I went, no, no, no. I stayed there with, with Kip Forbes, you know, and, um, and, and Charles and Camilla. I spent weekends there. And he goes, you don't even know Prince Charles. 
<laughs> no, 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 I do. And um, that's why, you know, so the Princess Drawing, you know, Drawing School was based in, you know, doing things, courses there and things. It's been uh, incredible. Because so, how old was the, how old is the chateau? It was originally So built. our chateau is about, well, the, the, the uh, chapel is 1148. Um, our chateau was built in about 1730, redone 1830, massively redone 1911 by the same designer as the Ritz in Paris. So wow. everything has... I mean, it is basically like inheriting the Ritz in Paris, where all of the ensuite um, bedrooms have bathrooms connected to them with the most amazing mother of pearl taps. And, mm. you know, we're still using an original bathroom at the moment um, while we get the other ones up and running. And I can't wait for the other ones to be up and running. Um, I love so. following the journey on Instagram. Like, tell people, because how long have you been working on it now so with your fiancé and with your wonderful 83-year-old mum? Yes, so it's been a, it's been a, one of those things. We started the Instagram mainly because I wanted my mother to know we weren't dead or buried under rubble. And um, so it was done for the family. And uh, it's just been one of those journeys in which very quickly, within the first two months of having bought the chateau, we discovered that uh, Eisenhower was based there for the Overlord campaign of you know, uh, the D-Day landings, which are, wow. I love that we were there for two years at the Chateau working on it and we didn't realise, someone said, so do you go to the beach op-? You know, often? And I went, what beach? And they <laughs> went, well, the, you know, obviously the D-Day landings were right by you. And I went, gosh, you know, and then it turns out that they're 19 minutes away. No. And that we'd never been to the beach. It was so weird. Um, so, you know, that was the great wow. thing of saying, oh, yeah, that's why. And so, you know, having had Omaha Beach and or Utah Beach, they came straight down. They had already designated the chateau to make their headquarters there. And um, we found film, so much film footage and, and photographs of Eisenhower and Bradley stationed there. Amazing writings of the troop layouts um, on the walls. So you've got Ernie Wolf um, writing their kind of kit layout on the, you know, the bedroom walls yeah, yeah, and the yeah. kind of top sections of the, of the, of the uh, chateau. And the communication lines from um, the, uh, the war were still in, in place. And it was pretty much left to its own devices, you know, for the last 20, 30 years. So, you know, it was the, the, at the point of where it would have gone past the point of being able to do anything to it. So we've managed to put a new roof on and we've done the whole outside of the building. My 83-year-old mother is up scaffolding and paintbrush and hands and kind of you know you know she's she's known to the kind of following as queen mary because she wears her pearls as she tackles the <laughs> ivy but it, the, you know it's it's the journey has has been one of those very unexpected moments where everyone's piled in to experience this with us and it literally is every month there's a new discovery what's been the most recent awesome discovery i guess the family who so uh, monsieur savary um created this redid the, the chateau in 1911 for his um, new wife who was very young at the time and they had three children so seeing the kind of the photographs of those three children and what the last child um died and he was 96 about two months ago mm. um so i met him a couple of times um and he has children and they live on the t you know one of them lives on the top farm and they are very kindly giving us back so much of the furniture original furniture of the chateau no that way. they has been sitting in a barn because they took it all out after the, you know the second world war and had most of it has just sat there completely untouched and how how is it how is the condition of the furniture? Some of it's you know you, you know we'll see that's why we you know 
we've been posting these elements of some of these gothic pieces coming back. Some of it's got woodworm holding hands, um, <laughs> keeping the whole structure together. So we'll have to redo those panels. Um, other bits are complete, you know, okay. They all need restoration, um, but you know, we've got the invoices and we know where every single piece stood. And That's it's amazing. just, it's incredible to piece back an entire building and like a, a whole having a blueprint, l- blueprint for the whole thing. And wow. all the photographs to, to know where these things go back and how you want to carefully start restoring something and putting back an entire room um, to how it was. Obviously, we don't have 11 staff, so... Because <laughs> that are, was what originally was there, right? They the yeah. had 11 staff. Yeah. And then they were, you know, obviously had, you know, the, 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 the people who would come into the chateau as well. So it was run very formally with a lot of staff. I mean, it's the kind of equivalent of the French, you know, Downton Abbey, where you go, this is... This is remarkable, but it's remarkable from so many different points of view, from social history that we don't talk about or that really hasn't been covered in many books or films, where even the list of servants from the um, 1830s onwards, which we've got, the names of these people change from being French people to, you know, all of the refugees from the First World War filtering their way and then becoming staff. And what's extraordinary is then seeing these, you know, these people from Poland and people re-establishing themselves yeah. as, you know, as domestics, um, they suddenly realise that, you know, as the Germans start kind of, you know, moving in, how that is, becomes incredibly complicated for them. And I don't know what happened to most of them during the Second World, but it then became the kind of SS head, you know, headquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, um, Monsieur Savary wasn't, uh, didn't survive the war because they found a parachute buried on the estate and they held him responsible no. for it. It was an English parachute. Um, and the children were taken out of the cinema that night. And so, you know, he was, they were both, you know, the three children and he, and he was sent to a concentration camp. He didn't survive that. And um, the three children were negotiated out. And so they did. Oh my goodness. I didn't so, know that could happen. It's incredible. It's remarkable. But it's 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 just it's an incredible story and it's an incredible change of life where you watch all these people suddenly, you know, you're very aware that the, when you're restoring these things and you find so many traces of of the war from the bullet holes in the in the uh, in the cornices to the documents stuffed in the heating vents that there must have been a point of blissful living in total luxury as you see you know the germans coming down the drive towards you and your life is then over and changed forever and i think i'm very aware you know that we're restoring this in a period in which we're at war technically we're at war with russia you know it's it's a very strange process to to know that that there is a war in, in in europe that's happening and that we found a, a, a pass stuffed in the heating vents um, from, from the SS, from the Nazis, giving the going to cook permission to go to buy food and wine provisions in Bayo, at the same time as the French issued the COVID passes to be able to leave your building no. to go out and buy food and wine. It's, and that's another war too. And that's a another kind, kind of, of you know, yeah. whole thing. So it is a very interesting... You're living in an extraordinary time and you're, you're restoring an extraordinary part of history. And we're very lucky that the family has been so incredibly generous and um, they really want to help us put this, this whole thing back together. Um, but it is, sometimes it's overwhelming. I was going to um, say, what's been the most, I mean, that, 
because not only is it a huge project, but it's also so personal as well. So what, what so far has been like the most overwhelming thing about the project or aspect of the project or I think I'm very used to doing buildings and I can understand the you know the, the complexity of that and I, I understand the process and Steve yeah. is brilliant at that too what's caught me by surprise is the the wonder and the difficulty of the park which it's like suddenly someone saying here here's Hyde Park enjoy because how, how many acres is there's it? a lot there's something about 27 30 acres oh, we wow. have a lake a summer oh house wow. on the lake waterfalls okay this is serious you know giant yeah. cascade we actually found buried under undergrowth the petty cascade which again we're trying to restore so you know, nature is one of those things that you can, like like a building, I can say, right, I'm going to deal with that in six months' time. I'll problem solve how to do this. Yeah. The park is a living, breathing moment. So we found these incredible watercolours from the 1850s of how the park was designed with these paths going through the tree groupings, which makes sense because you walk around the park and the vistas basically unfold as you walk through. And so we put all these paths back. Brilliant great <laughs> i don't have a four-person gardening team it's me and <laughs> my mother queen mother queen mary queen and mary. Uh, you know you know there we are weeding and you know these paths need constant attention it's great to put them back but my goodness it's now you know you're suddenly having to look after the whole thing wow and that's 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 hard because there does definitely needs to be at some point structure there and i don't know whether we'll ever open the uh the the gardens to the public i mean they are beautiful absolutely extraordinary i mean they i can't begin to tell you how how surprising it is for me to fall in love with that even if there wasn't a chateau there the park has a thousand years beneath your feet of the most remarkable landscape and it's so rare and so peaceful and the entire town has no idea it's there I remember having my hair cut three years ago and um, explaining that I lived in the town and they went, where? <laughs> After explaining four or five times, I thought, you know, they said, we've lived here, you know, we've never heard, you know, the trees grew up around it. It totally disappeared. Wow, that's completely Even obscured. the postman has no idea how to deliver a letter. So how do you get your letters? The only thing that can ever deliver is Amazon. Go figure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and even then it's touch and go. It's 50-50. Would you ever open it to the public in some kind of well, very yeah, regulated way? Definitely the gardens, um, you know, because it would be wonderful to share some of that. I do have a burning question about yes. the chateau. Are you going to make one of the rooms in the chateau a homage to your model trains? <laughs> I think the model trains will definitely be there, but they'll be in the park, so... Yeah, so tell, yeah, tell us a bit more about one of your interests. You have so a lot. So one of my secret <laughs> interests of kind of, I've been spotted all over the world reading model railway um, magazines. So, <laughs> yeah, my team find it quite kind of historical. Steve looks at me slightly bemused. Um, I don't know, I've, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved model railways. I used to work on the Tenterton line on the big steam trains. And... I collected N-Gage, which was manageable, and then I moved to Gage 1, where they're you know, full live you know, steam engines that you can put methylated spirits in and run along tracks. And then I've discovered that these things can get bigger, so you can get a kind of seven and a quarter inch and sit on the actual thing. And I'm negotiating a kind of route around the chateau um, grounds 
so that we can actually put one of those in. Um, <laughs> there was one moment which I said, so you know that kind of downstairs room that we don't know what to do with? If we just put that as an engine room where we could come out, so even in the cold, it doesn't matter. I could, we could fire up the engine and just take the engine straight out of the chateau, <laughs> round the grounds. How cool would that be? He's, he's horrified. <laughs> Um, well, see, again, it's all about balance, appreciating history and then through one's own lens. I know. And one day, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, make, you know, I'll have conversations with Chateau Balloua and I'll say, right, now we've got the rail we started at our chateau. Why don't we go down the kind of, you know, the whole, you know, horse parade, which is beautiful. It's one of the longest um, horse canters um, in France. And we could put a kind of, you know, the railway down the side of it, going to their chateau and then back again. Hooray. <laughs> I've got one less profound question, but I am really curious about it. Um, is it true that you might have a letter from Napoleon Bonaparte and also a lock of Marie Antoinette's hair? Hmm. I've got some um, pieces signed by um, Napoleon. Um, I'm not sure I've got a kind of lock of... I can't remember where I read that. It was like insinuated, but yeah. <laughs> I've started collecting, obviously, in the last... Um, I collect a lot of ephemera, and the more um, slightly strange and, un, you know, tangible, the more it, it is it really interests me. So I've, I've started collecting a lot of French things, and um, obviously the Elizabeth Lebrun um, pastels and a whole range of different things to go into the chateau. I would love my French to be better so that I could really start hunting down things more than I do at the moment. But it's, you know, at the moment, it's just kind of furniture and uh, a lot of different uh, quirky ephemeral things. Um, I've just got a, some one of these incredible, um, what I call peeparamas, where you look through these shows where I can only describe it by the, 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 these things that unfold as you look through them. And even in this modern world that we live in, where we have television and video, you still go, oh, that is extraordinary. I've never seen anything like that. Um, and some of them are produced in France, and I've been trying to chase those down. Well, I think we've now come to the part in the podcast where we have the wine confessional. And this is where I ask someone to regale a story, an embarrassing or funny story. It doesn't have to be involving wine. I think, you know, the most humiliating moments are when you kind of look back and because I've as I kind of touched on before I, I'm so obsessed with the labels and not from the point of view of being able to show off about it but because yeah. there's just I just find you know anything that's ephemeral and labels of a bottle of wine are ephemeral mm -hmm. one of those great things and I think I've, I've embarrassed myself so many times at the end of a really incredible dinner where someone else has bought a bottle of you know i don't know chateau latache or something and i go i'm sorry can i possibly ask for the label to be taken off <laughs> and that is so humiliating because everyone just looks so embarrassed and you know it's just and then you think i'm not going to bother explaining that you know but i i keep all the labels sometimes to talk my father um sometimes because it's just the artwork yeah and i think it's you know, those things I just find very, very interesting. It's it's a kind of snapshot of, of, of real life. Just like I collect, you know, all the kind of, you know, newspapers from the 1830s. Mm -hmm. And you've got a snapshot of life at that point. And the labels are the same, you know, the snapshot of the labels at that particular time of its life. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those are the things that... I love that. No one's ever... Off. I've never really thought of wine labels as as ephemeral before so no, they are because they that. just disappear yeah gone 
I never even thought of it in that way before. So thank you for that. That's something which I've, like, I've been surrounded with for years and I've never ever thought of it in that way. So thank you so much. Has and anyone ever done an exhibition of wine? You know, has anyone curated an exhibition of wine labels from a personal point of view? I don't it think would be, so. You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, it's artwork. Absolutely. Every single thing. As you say, it's a moment of time. It's it's creativity, it's vision, it's heritage. Absolutely. I've got some fantastic, um, you know, copper plates of the labels that were created for the fireworks that, you know, in Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. Th- you know, things like that. I love things like that because they, they were never intended to be things that lasted forever. And yet there they are. And it's a snapshot of that time. Now I want to start a scrapbook of wine labels. You've inspired me, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Hooray! I know everyone's going to be very interested in the Chateau. So the best way to follow the progress of the Chateau would probably be the Instagram. Yep, there's an strange, wonderful Instagram, which is called Restoration Chateau. Um, I think we've got about 29,000 people who are engaged. And bizarrely, I only really post at the kind of weekends because I reply to every single person who asks a question and we're now up to about 300 people per posting who ask questions and it's great because you start getting really engaged with everyone that's part of the journey with you so I love that so yeah if you're up to it follow it and uh, enjoy it no and no it's just been such a delight and inspiring as I say in in lots of different ways and a delight in all the senses as always my time with you is whether whether it's us eating drinking going to musicals opera whatever it's uh, always such fun and so interesting so thank you thank Thank you you so much really good Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope that this has inspired you to grab a glass and have a wonderful conversation with someone close to you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please can you like and review because I've heard that this is how people can find me. And if you are interested in any of the wines featured in today's episode, all wine notes are included in the podcast description below. You can also find ways to contact me via my email, website and social media handles. The common theme is at Amelia's Wine. You do need to remember, though, that there is a hyphen between Amelia's and wine. Otherwise, it looks like Amelia's swine. Thank you so much again and back in blessings.